Welcome to the Archive Room podcast, stories of Manx life in years gone by, told by the people who were there. Manx Radio. Master Mai, Judith Lay here, once again opening the door to the Archive Room, Manx Radio's treasure chest of stories of island life from years gone by, told by the people who were there. So, come on in, and let me take you for another and gentle in the Archive stroll room down tonight, Manx, we'll memory be in lane. May with Alec Caron, in Craigniche again with Doris Madrill, then back to Kirk Michael for some dialect poetry from Norman Barron. But first, we're going to Ramsey Railway Station in the company of Frank Downworth. Frank left school in 1946 at the age of 14, but didn't have to make any career decisions. There was an established family tradition of working on the railway, and a job on the railway in Ramsey in particular was highly prized and considered a job for life. Frank's brother George was already working there and was a familiar sight driving round Ramsey in the old 1920 Morris Commercial Delivery Truck. Registration MN4, known by all as Old Number 6, putting out plenty of smoke and noise as George drove round the town delivering, amongst many other things, holidaymakers' luggage to the boarding houses. And whilst it turned out not to be a lifetime career for Frank, the five years that he spent there left memories that lasted a lifetime. At Ramsey Railway Station, 14-year-old Frank's job was junior porter clerk. Actually, it was... General Dog's body, the golfer. Make the tea for the station master and his assistant. Help people out of the coaches. Book parcels in, book parcels out. Make sure doors were shut for the guard. When all the passengers were off, one of my jobs would be to unload the brake van. Milk churns, boxes of butter, all the sort of things that was coming into the shops. We had a uniform, there was a, like um, a little waistcoat and blue, no, green corduroy trousers and a little hat. But I didn't graduate to that, you had to uh, be 20 before you got that. So what they gave me was an old uh, army uniform dyed blue. <laughs> <laughs> Who was the station master? Teddy Tompkins, the station master. Very nice chap indeed, charming fellow. Tall chap with spectacles. His brother worked in Ramsey too. He was with Ramsey Motors and tragically he was killed in a, an air crash when there was a, a lot of the island garage folk were going to, I think it was Birmingham, or to a motor show and they were tragically killed. His brother was killed. But Teddy, charming bloke. You couldn't wish to meet a nicer fellow. Helpful. Teddy had a new bike, brand new rally. Another one of my jobs was going out collecting all the all the bills, the counts. Ted used to lend me his bike. He used to lower the saddle for me and lend me his bike. And I had to go around the town, around Ramsey, collecting all the bills, the money, and uh, signing the receipts. In my life, it was only a short period. It was only five years. But it amazes me how it stays with me for so long. But mainly, it was the atmosphere and the people that we, that I worked with. It wasn't like a job. It was um, it was a way of life. What was a good thing, it was always stood in good stead for me, it was all the people that I worked with were much older. They were people from the First World War, and what they didn't know wasn't worth knowing. They would put you on the right track for everything. I mean, all the old engine drivers, the firemen, the guards, understation master, they were much older than me. I mean, you take, I was a lad of 15, and they would have been, well, they must have all been in their middle 50s, wouldn't they, if mm. they'd have been in the First World War. And they were then all willing to help a young lad. Oh, absolutely. They used to call me son. They didn't call me Frank. It was just son. Hey, son, go and get this. Son, go and do that. You couldn't wish for nicer people. What about the uh, incident the tragic incident at Union Mills with the stationmaster there, George Hogg, because I think that must have been during this period as well. Right. How did that filter through to Ramsey? We got a call over the... Um, the railway had its own telephone system. We got a call that there had been an incident at Union Mills. They didn't tell us exactly what had happened. 
I know the train must have stopped off at Solby Glen or Solby Bridge, and the station master there phoned us, and he told us what had happened, so we were fully prepared for anything that might be happen when he came in. But the, what I do remember was the state that the guard was in. It seems ironic. Nowadays, they wouldn't have let him carry on. They were exchanging batons. The train wasn't stopping at um, Union Mills, and they were exchanging batons, and Mr Hogg, I suppose he must have been probably in his late 50s at that time, they had exchanged batons, and he was standing close to the edge of the train, and when he went to turn, he must have well, he must have had a dizzy spell or something, but had a giddy spell, a dizzy spell, and fell in. Now, the driver and fireman, they'd passed the baton over, and they didn't see it, but the guard, Walter, was sat in the brake van down the back of the train, looking out his little window on the side. He spotted old Hogg fall, so he lammed the brakes on, held the brakes on as hard as he could, and, of course, the driver and fireman at the front knew there was something wrong, so they anchored up as well. And um, it seems that old Walter came out, ran up to the engine. I can't remember who the driver and fireman were now. However, he said to them, he said, I, I think Hoggies fell down in, in between the train, and they, they went looking for him. And first of all, they couldn't find anything. And then, obviously, they found his body stretched out along the track because there's no clearance underneath those coaches or locomotives, maybe 8 or 10-inch ground clearance, so there was no chance of him going underneath the wheels or anything like that. The train then carried on to Ramsey. Yes. Was that guard still this is on the, the This is what n never fails to amaze me looking back at it over the years. The same guard that had witnessed that was allowed to get back on that train and take it through to Ramsey. The same crew took it back into Ramsey. It, clearly in some state of shock. He was in a state of shock. And when the train came in, the, the man was crying. He was a man in his late 50s. And he was shaking like a leaf and he was crying. And uh, Ted Tonkins, the station master, went up to him and he said, you go home, Walter, leave everything. Because they were supposed to book in, you know, hand in their reports and whatever, the bills. and But uh, Teddy said to him, look, you go straight home, Walter, we'll clear everything up. And um, I do remember Walter went out of the station, grabbed the station master's bike and rode home on that bike. David Collister is talking here with Frank Downworth, whose first job as a 14-year-old was in Ramsey Railway Station, and the five years he was there were times packed with incident, both frightening and funny. The little job I had was to uh, operate Ramsey Station's one and only signal. When a train used to come through Lizare Holt, I had to pull the signal lever down to lock the points and allow it to come into the station. And when it had gone through the points, throw the lever over again, to unlock the points and clear the line. I pulled the signal down this one day and stood by the lever watching the train coming in and at a certain point you knew where it should be starting to slow down as it had come over the points. You expected this. I mean, it had about six coaches full of holidaymakers on board it. You knew at a certain point where it should be starting to slow down. But this particular day, middle of the summer, I thought this train seemed to be going a little bit faster than usual. No sign of it slowing down. I thought this train is going a little bit faster than usual. And the next minute, the start sparks start flying off the wheels. You can hear his brakes go on. He's sliding down the track. The fireman jumps out of one side. The driver jumps out of the other side. Our station master ran into the office. Everybody took cover. And it stopped about three feet from the stop blocks at the end of the station. But what had happened, the fireman and the driver had had a, bit, a little bit of an argument up the track somewhere. And they'd overlooked the signal. And the, the argument must got pretty heated because the, they didn't land the brakes on until the last minute. Clearly remember this, people getting out of the train with their buckets and spades and little kiddies, all nonchalant, looking at the beautiful sunny day, looking forward to a day down the beach, not realising that it's been about three feet off a disaster. <laughs> because no, nobody said a word about it. It's yeah. kept very quiet. 
and the five-minute driver came sheepishly walking to, down the track alongside the train and went into the engine shed. The holidaymakers, of course, coming into Ramsey in the summertime, what, what, were they in big numbers off the yeah. trains? Yeah, oh, big numbers, yeah. An average train would come in six, eight coaches, two locos, 1,800 people maybe. I remember going on Sunday school picnics on the train. I can't remember Ramsey Station, but I, I don't think it was one of the attractive stations. No, it was a working station. We used to handle a lot of livestock. That was another one of my jobs, too, loading all the cows and sheep and pigs into these uh, wagons. No runaway bulls. Oh, yes. Oh, runaway animals. Yeah, that was great. Runaway animals, yeah. Little pig running around Ramsey platform. Everybody trying to catch this damn pig. Sheep escaping, running over the wall and swimming across the river. That was another one. And then, of course, you'd always get a stupid cow. I don't mean person. The animal, the four-legged animal, which didn't want to get in the cattle truck. And he'd slip and go down in between the cattle truck and the loading platform. There was one hell of a job to get that out of. And dirty. There'd be cow muck everywhere. How did you get them out? Man oh, manhandled? Manhandled them out, yeah. Get ropes around them and get some strong lads and get them out. You obviously had to be, with manhandling so many things, you had to be a tough lad then. Yeah, well, I think those days young people had to be tough and rugged. We didn't think it was anything unusual, but uh, a truckload of potatoes had come in. They had to be loaded, five tonne of potatoes. And you didn't have a forklift truck or a load of people to help you. You had to get on with it and load them yourself. Or if you took all this luggage around to these boarding houses, you know, six floors high, hmm. you had to carry the damn suitcases up yourself on your shoulder and put them in the rooms. There's a funny story about that, come to think of it, too. Sorry, my brother used to drive the little delivery truck. We were taking a trunk up to one of these big boarding houses on the North Shore, about eight, six, eight floors high. This damn trunk must have weighed two and a half hundred weight. It was terrible. And we had to take it on the top floor. So we're struggling up with it all the way up the stairs. And we get on a little corner, and there was a plinth with a head on it, a china head sort of thing on an ornament in the corner. And we inadvertently knocked into this damn thing, and it fell over, and the head broke off. So what are we going to do? So we, uh, we put the trunk in the room, and we uh, came back and we gingerly put the head back on. You couldn't see any mark. We put the head back on. My brother knew the chap who owned this boarding house. Several weeks after, this chap said, it's George, he said, the funniest thing, said, I must tell you, he said, the funniest thing happened to me the other week. I'm walking up the top of the stairs. He goes in the room, number 12 bedroom or whatever. He said, I shut the door and he said, the bloody head fell off this statue. <laughs> <laughs> so George said, is that right? <laughs> Holiday makers, but in a very different setting, are the link between Frank Downworth and Doris Madrill, who was born in the early 1900s, lived all her life in Craigneesh, and was 88 at the time of this conversation with David Collister. Harry Kelly's thatched cottage is probably the most easily recognised building in Craigneesh village. But how many people actually knew Harry Kelly himself? Well, Doris Madrill certainly did. We lived at the bottom of Craigneesh, down near Harry Kelly's. Harry was on the calf working, and every now and again he'd take an ocean to come home. Mm. When he came home, we all knew when he was going to the port or down the harbour because he'd come back with a big bag of, as he called them, peppermints, yeah. and these strong ones, and you, you take them like that to lick them. Strong you know, mints, but you take, yeah. oh, They were horrible, really, but we still took them. Uh -huh. uh, we knew that Harry would be down having a dram, you see. Mm. Well, of course, we'd play round about Harry's when he was home. I always liked him, mm. and yet I heard somebody saying he was, you know, people used to come and go like this, 
and look in his window yeah. and he'd say, bad cess to you, you know. Yeah. yeah. And he used to call the people that came cotton balls. Did he? Yes. What does that mean? Well, it was only recently uh, I said to one of the museum fellows, uh, you know, Harry Kelly used to call the visitors cotton balls. And I said, I wonder why. Well, of course, he was a Northside Englishman. And he said, I'll tell you why, because they become on the cotton wakes. Of course, yeah. And I never... That's it, it's the but, cotton, cotton workers and so on, yes, the mill workers. But I'll tell you this, which tickled me, oh, tremendous. I don't know, was it after the war, and there were some people that had come from the cotton area again, and they were gone down to Harry Kelly's. They were on a coach trip. So when I was in the garden, and there was a lady stopped. So she said to me, does thou live here? So I said, yes. Up here? I said, up here. So she looked at me, looked me up and down. Does thou ever feel lonely up here? So I said, no. So she said, what does thou do? So I don't know what I did. I couldn't tell you because <laughs> I thought to myself, if you don't go, Mrs. <laughs> so then... I said, where, where are you from? So she told me where it was from. I don't know where it was now. Mm. And I said, where are you staying? And she stood up and she said, I'm staying at Thyler Man. <laughs> I said, oh, yeah. <laughs> so I said, but this is the island. Oh, no, she said, Douglas is Thyler Man. So I said, you might think so. So I thought to myself, well, I don't get in. I might tell you what to do. <laughs> so I went in the house and left her standing there. But, it, you know, I'll never forget the way she said. No, but also thee and thou would have been used around this area, though, would they? Oh, the yes, Joe. You'd say to me, hello. This would be your great uncle, was it? Yes. Yeah. He was 93 when he died. And he's, he'd said, you know... Will they get me slippers or will they get me a drink or something, you know? Doris Madrill sharing with David Collister a little of her life growing up in Craigneesh. For Alec Quirk Caron, a lifetime spent in Glen May meant he knew every person living there. You were brought up here in Glen May all your life? All my life. Glen May all my life. And I was born at the Craig Lay, but I was only very young when, I, when we came to Craig and Ashen. Right opposite Glen May Chapel, though. Uh, more or less derelict now, but however. I brought up in Craig and Ashen more or less all my life. And uh, there's a lot of characters in Glen May in them days. They were more or less living in poverty. There's a fella living on the Glen Russian Road named Harry Quilliam, living in a little stone place with a sloping roof on it. And in the middle of it was a cast iron stove and a pipe going up through the roof. Just the one room and a bit of a division for the bed, whatever the bed was. And Eddie Neen the baker used to come round here with bread from Peel. And me being a young fella, I'd be going with Eddie, running into houses with the loaves. And Harry, he was more or less paralysed down on one side, living on his own. And you going into Harry, and the way he was cutting the loaf was, he'd a 
lump of wood with four six-inch nails driven in it and a lump of string. And you used to wedge the loaf down between the six-inch nails, put the loop of string over it and put his foot on it to hold it still and cut the loaf with the knife. And to me it was just the way of living the man had. Yes. People talk about poverty today, they have no idea what poverty was like. What was it like? Well, there was no pleasures in life. The characters that was living in Glenmay, there was Chum Quilliam, there was Elsie Quilliam, there was Emma Quilliam. Chum Quilliam could neither read nor write, and he couldn't talk very much. He was only mumbling, you couldn't tell what Chum was saying. Mm. And he was the striker that was in the smithy with Arthur Corkle. There was a smithy here as well, wasn't there? Top of the hill there. It's all gone, all demolished now. A smithy up there. And me being full of the devil as a young fella, used to go up there at night time when the, all the farmers around about would be coming there to get the harrow sharpened, shoes for the horses, pointing the steel bars of the plough. And that was a hive that we used to go Corkle would have a good fire on and be sitting down the fire and that would be passing the evening away. Another character here was Charlie the tailor. He used to live in the little house right at the top of Glenmay Hill during the Glenrushen Road. There was enough work for a tailor out here? Oh, no, 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 no. There'd be no work for a tailor at all, but that's where he went by, Charlie the tailor. What is occupation was, I wouldn't know. Charlie moved from there, he was a bit of a cripple in one leg, he moved from there to a little wooden hut up the Mullochvedden Road. And that was another haunt that people were going to. It's a haunt for us young fellas. If there was any amount of old men they'd be going up there, and there's a round store in the middle of the floor, only a wooden hut. And Charlie would be sitting on a bit of an old table in the corner, and all the topics of the village would be discussed, right or wrong. Phil Collister, the joiner, was here, and Annie, living in the archway alongside the chapel. Freddie Kohler was living down the middle of the hill. Stockton was living on the top of the hill, married to Mrs. Kelly, that used to come from Arasi. Corras. She was supposed to be half man, half woman. Which half was which, I don't know. But she used to go around with the Kajas cart selling herring. <laughs> this is a time when everybody knew everybody else. Everybody knew everybody else. I had a milk round. Six o'clock in the morning, out to milk the cows, all by hand. And you fill the kegs, point measure, quart measure. Went from house to house. Every door would be open, the jug would be on the table. Put it in, shouted, hello, he'd be uh, gone again. Yeah. And I knew everybody that lived in Glenway and Derby. This would be milk before tubercular intestine came in? Oh, yes, 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 yes. TB, there was no TB. They weren't talking about TB in them days, man. No, no, no. And there was no hygiene 
You'd milk the cows, pour through the soil, and you'd ride it, pour it out. Nobody queried it. Working on the family farm, helping to deliver bread, having a milk round, Alec Caron's working days, even as a young lad, were busy from dawn to dusk. But what about a Sunday? Well, in the Caron family, the day was set around no less than three visits to church. Half past ten on Sunday morning, half past two Sunday afternoon, mother and father, my brother and myself, Sunday night at six o'clock. That was routine. Yeah. And Sunday dinner, there'd be a pot of broth, a big lump of a pot, there'd be a lump of beef in it, and all sorts of stuff in it. Ginny nettles chopped up in it, and a suet pudding wrapped up in a cloth. Yes. And spuds and stuff. You sat down for dinner, and Mother would take the pudding out of the pot, scotch it in the cold water, then you'd have broth, meat, and spuds. The pudding would be took out of the cloth, cut a lump off. Sometimes there was white sauce, other times there wasn't. But we didn't know nothing else, boy. Alec Quirk Caron, looking back on the Sunday routine from his youth on the family farm in Glen May. And from Glen May, we're going back to Kirk Michael to hear from Norman Barron, who featured in an earlier programme talking about his life as a postman. Here he is with the story of old Bobby Bob from his repertoire of Manx dialect poems by Joan Noah. I've a hard tale of old Bobby Bob and his woman Margaret Ann. She used to call him an awkward big slob in the bottom of the slipper of his hand. And bless me soul, the fuss she'd make when he'd slate with a sum on the southern cake. Bobby Bob, thou slob, she'd bawl. Well, ever was thou brought up at all. But Bobby would seldom answer her back, but ate away till his lips would smack. Thou be noisin' like muckin' when thou ate, and put thy skethin down on thy plate. And Bobby would say that quiet and slow, I'm pourin' it down where it's meant to go. Now Bobby wasn't a bad soul at all, but mighty fond of a drop for all. But they're saying her constant nagging and frown sent Bobby to town as troubles to drown. And as then herself would be ever on his track to give him curd day when he'd get back. But that's where Margaret folk got stuck because it was just like water on the wing of a duck. At last she thought, I'll cure him though. I'll give me all Bobby Bob what for. So the next time Bobby went to town, Herself with a friggin' got prowling around and worked herself all up into a fidge. Then off she goes for the Doric Bridge just to wait for Bobby to come, saying, I'll cure the old rascal of rum. But Margaret hadn't to wait that long, for yonder was Bobby coming strong for the narrow bridge, tacking his way like a heavy ship in a heavy sea. I'll frecken of a marvelous witch, she said, and flung a sheet right over her head and rushed to meet him with a scream just as Bobby was crossing the stream. <laughs> I've come to claim thee, Bobby Cowl. Come thou with me, for I'm the jowl. Oh, deed thou, says Bobby as he blinks and leers. Well, give me your hand, 
Frecken, no fears, for I've lived with thy sister for 40 years. <laughs> the story of old Bobby Bob, told by Norman Barron. And that's all we have time for tonight, and indeed, for this series. I hope we'll be opening the door to the archive room again later in the year, but if you've missed any of the earlier programmes, all the episodes since we started last year are available as podcasts to listen again or share with friends. Just go to manxradio.com and search for the archive room under the podcast tab. I'm indebted to the late David Collister who first carefully collected these interviews and to our present-day archivist Tim Price for his help in producing these programmes. And last but by no means least, my thanks to you for listening. This is Judith wishing you a very good evening and, as always, leaving the last word to our resident rambler, Howard Hampton. Anyway, so long, you sir. Station